Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. Today, we will be discussing digital transformation and scaling digital successfully in organizations. I am delighted to welcome Adam Bonifield, Chief Executive Officer of Conux. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Adam, you've been working on this topic for years in various different industries and environments, ranging from co-founding a big data startup to innovation in the White House to looking at the rise of AI and what that means for organizations, which, of course, is where we met, working together on scaling transformation, but also creating different cultures to enable what digital has to offer. You're currently the CEO of Connect, which is a leading German AI scale-up uh, looking to transform railway operations. For sustainable future. So can we start there? What's your Connux journey so far? And what are your biggest learnings about scaling digital operations? Ah, in Connux. Yeah. So as you say, I mean, with Connux, it's very, I mean, we have this crazy moonshot ambition, <laughs> which is to say to take one of the oldest industries mm. in the world that we all depend on, that's that's vital for kind of all of our sustainability goals that 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 we move people onto rail mm. and rail. But rail is one of the least digital environments <laughs> in the world. I mean, it's uh-huh. like steel and concrete. And I mean, a lot of the processes yeah. around how to manage and operate these networks mm. were developed hundreds of years ago and, you know, yeah. uh, have changed not that much since. Yeah. So it's like where you, where you and I met, which was, you know, in, in aviation, this is, mm. this is, you know, in some ways, you know, requires the digitization. But in the other ways, it has this pioneering spirit and is constantly reinventing itself. I think with rail, it's not this way. So with us, what we thought to do was to kind of take a lot of next generation technologies, a lot of the most Mm -hmm. advanced technologies, and figure out a way to retrofit them into this rail ecosystem. So we built this sensor network and um, had to design um, this this yellow box that would be robust enough to get hit by gravel and ice at hundreds of kilometers (laughs) per hour, and yet like fine-tuned enough Mm -hmm. to detect you know the the hidden footprints of of the trains moving across it the infrastructure around wow. it basically to reconstruct the entire physical environment mm. around the sensor in order to generate a kind of digital footprint um which we could then analyze using then separately this whole ai processing pipeline and this is hard yeah <laughs> like a hard. yellow moonshot box <laughs> and you know, this is a very very hard technical problem mm. uh, but then of course there's all these other hard change management problems because then you have to say okay so so now if we can solve this technical problem and and be all of a sudden able to say how you should operate the network how you should maintain it which assets are going to fail when and, mm. and what you should do about it which is really important right because the answers to these questions allow you to double the capacity of the network which is just you know so mm. important to the world because we can't lay new track at least not yeah. and so we need to figure out how to reinvent the system um, but then even still, you need to kind of walk through the users of the system along mm. the change mm. management journey. And and this this is its own, you know, devilish and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, can, I can imagine. Well, we've already sort of touched on the legacy systems. Let's say it's quite a traditional, slow-moving industry with legacy systems. But what about the legacy people systems? So you talked about change management, you know. How important was that to scaling? I'm going to call it the yellow moonshot box. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be a yellow moonshot box, but um, because that's a very ambitious project, like you say, that's pioneering and miles away from what I would imagine the legacy system of rail is. If we're talking about legacy people systems, 
I would say, and I'm curious if you agree, because I think this is true at Airbus as well, mm-hmm. that very contrary to one's impression, the closer you get to the people on the ground dealing with the problem, the more openness you get to the kind of big transformational opportunities that you're trying to advance. So for us, I mean, the way we looked at it is if you're a kind of engineer, an asset owner, somebody who's responsible for kind of maintaining track, for example, mm. in the Rex, you are constantly drowning. You're mm. given, you know, jobs to do manual inspection very, very frequently. You have basically no visibility into what's going right or wrong. You're just guessing. Mm. Um, limited resources. People are retiring you know, and, and you're trying, and you're trying to make it all work. So you have this experience of constantly drowning. And so therefore, if somebody could come in and present a solution to you to say like, look, use the same tools and systems that you're currently using, except instead of being, you know, drowning and having no visibility, Mm -hmm. suddenly we turn the lights on and we say, here's the 10 things that you should be doing and and we'll help you do it. This to me is like very, very, very exciting. And, And this to me is the story of a lot of digital technology, which is people imagine digital technology as a kind of threat to people's um, jobs. If you look at, especially in the industrial context, what it really means is it's kind of like a threat to the most boring, the most frustrating and annoying parts of people's jobs. (laughs) And it's usually empowering to the the skilled, creative, and enervating parts of people's jobs. And so this to me is the easiest part of the change management journey, just kind of bringing a new technology in that genuinely solves a real problem people have. And as long as that's the premise of the work, it can be very powerful. And then, of course, the people systems is as you get further and further away from the problem and you get more into this middle management layer, and mm-hmm. top layer you need to then tell a story around transformation that that does create genuine disruption to the way things, things are done and to kind of the power centers and how people operate and stuff like this. So this mm-hmm. is, to me, typically unlike the top level, you get great buy-in because people are very excited by big innovation, change management projects. On the um, ground level, you get excitement that finally somebody's here to help me solve a big problem. Mm. And then the biggest part is the like part in the middle where you're not experiencing the pain and you're not that excited yeah. about major transformation. You're just kind of trying to yeah. trying to operate the system that you're in. Yeah, this is this is the trickiest bit. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. And I think the more you go and actually speak to people on the ground who have expectations, who know what they do, who know the pain points inside out, then you do get buy-in from that level. And it is the middle of the sandwich, isn't it? Like you said, where, where there's some type of inertia and also quite a lot of resistance to change. Yeah. So how do you move that block, Adam? What's what's the sort of secret sauce in in your mind for actually one getting them to listen, and two getting them to step with you on on a different type of journey? And it doesn't have to be all at once. I'm hearing that you know small is beautiful, which it is, and incremental change will build momentum in your system. But how do you how do you look at that middle layer? Well, I would say probably there are three lessons that I've taken away over the years. Mm. The first was a learning from the White House where basically you have very fierce tribal rivalries. Mm. Because as you can imagine, you know, we yeah. have Democrats in the United States yeah. uh, working in the Obama administration. We have the Democrats, the Republicans, civil servants and political appointees. And it's like war. Yeah. 
So it's a lot of tribes. There's a lot of, I mean, it's like a, it, it's tribal by design, right? Yeah. And we were working on this project called worker.gov, which was meant to be a place where any worker could come. And if they were, if they had some kind of workplace violation, whether it's discrimination mm. or, or sexual harassment or any, any, any mm. notion, they could kind of find out if what they did was wrong and then even take action, right? It sounds very simple. Like this should just exist. You should be able to go to a website and find out if your rights were violated. But it's very hard because actually many different agencies are in charge of different kinds of work. Mm. They don't want to work together because they hate each other. So <laughs> what was very interesting to me is we had this project, you know, we just had the we just had the concept worker.gov and and it was it was branded as an Obama initiative. And people understood that it, there was this kind of technology approach that was going to unify all of these systems, all these data systems in, in different agencies. And all these people showed up. You know, we just held the meeting. We held it at the White House and 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 everyone showed up into the room. Mm. Somebody remarked, and these were like kind of the relevant, not heads of the agency, but the relevant ones had mm. in charge of digital for the agency. They said, this is the first time I've ever been in a room with any of the other of them. And it was wow. just kind of very interesting, even though this is their whole job. Yeah. They actually shared the same space before. And then and I and we asked, like, why is why is this here? And they said, Well, you know. It's an innovation project, right? So this is a this is a you know, and there's something about like the space created by like technology and innovation that got people at least for that moment to kind of like set aside mm. their tribal rival rivalries. And this is a very powerful. Mm. It's so funny, you know. I think I think digital technology is very powerful per se, but the mm. thing that is often like the most kind of, the, the, let's say the secret power of it is that just people all think of it as a bit magical. And so w- they're willing to like psychologically, you know, sort of kind of calm, calm themselves a bit and just, and just yeah. say, okay, I'm going to set this aside. We're in this, we're in this now new safe space, innovation space. So that was very helpful. So that, that was a big one. Second learning I would say is, is, is what I was sort of alluding to before that when you're actually solving a real problem, mm. uh, you know, a lot of times the proof is just in the pudding. And and usually, like, if you can arm yourself with an incredible business case and, and, and a lot of data to back up what you're doing is really useful and really frame things as pushing solutions that people are desperate for mm. versus kind of starting with the change management, saying like, okay, first step is yeah. you're all going to get really annoyed yeah. and have to listen to me. <laughs> and then the next step is you're going to get a lot of good stuff that you want. This, to me, I think is the trickier thing to do. Mm. I either would smuggle in the change management with the like cool thing that's solving people's problems. And then I think the third thing that's often third lesson that's often really neglected is where you can minimize the type of disruption that you're causing in people's lives, again, using technology and creative mm. ways. So for us, for example, at Conux, when we like, like one of the things, oh, let, let me put it to you this way at Airbus, we saw, um, as I'm sure you saw, that as you introduce a new system, suddenly people are like, "Okay, I have yet another tool that I have." Yep. To yep. And, and and maybe these you know these people have like 20 tools that they're managing in their day to day life. It's like very very painful for people. So at Codex, we we're very clever to kind of say we're going to integrate with all of your existing tooling. We're going. You're not going to really change actually a lot of aspects of your job. You're just going to get instead of wrong answers, right answers. Instead mm-hmm. of waiting a long time, you're going to get it faster. And so, really thinking through the user experience and user journey creatively, and often using technology 
creatively in order to integrate and leverage legacy systems can be very useful. And if one day you know, we can we can upgrade the whole tool, great. But for mm-hmm. the meantime, managing that change by actually using technology creatively can be can be mm-hmm. very smart, I think. Because that supposes anticipation, doesn't it, Adam? So it supposes that people have had the time to have a look at the user journey, to have a look at the status quo of what exists and how many tools, whether it's 20 or 40 or whatever, and actually sort of take this to people. But I mean, I like the fact that creative spaces, people get excited about them, probably because for them, they're new, they don't know what's in them. So there's no real accountability there for them yet. So they can sort of go in there free of uh, accountability and, and, and think differently. But you can't have one without the other, can you? You can't have like tools without process and without people, and you can't have people without process and tools. So how do we create a step in that journey where you actually take the time, Adam, at all levels, so I'm thinking of C-suite and the middle management and the people, to actually look at what they need, what they feel and what they think? Because I completely agree with you. If you go in there with this is really going to help you and then you look at the reactions to change, it's incredibly helpful. If you go, here's a new tool and please just use it, that's probably a lot less helpful. Yes. I think that's fair. You know, it's funny because honestly, I mean, I would fight about this. Certainly at the White House, right? Because we Mm. have many kinds of people and and each of them own their own work. And so we Mm. saw saw different ways of doing it, you know? Some who came straight up from the top and said, this is going to be led by the director of the agency and and it's Mm. just and get in line. So at the FBI, that's how they did it. You know, we're mm. going we're to change how we work at the FBI. Director of the FBI, James Comey said, we're doing it. It, you know, <laughs> this is then, what it looks like. <laughs> and, and for the FBI, you know, that worked actually, you know, <laughs> and, and then in a different context where, you know, people were more operationally accountable. And, and I said, you had this experience of just drowning, drowning, mm. drowning. Mm. Then we could just start by offering solutions and then a lot of the process change and and culture changed around it because people were just desperate for the solutions. You know, there's a very good analogy for like what kind of organization you have, which is based on the kind of the star model that you yep. do your startup, turnaround, mm. uh, accelerating success and uh, realignment. And mm. I find that depending on where your organization is, it kind of is differently suited for different approaches. And, you know, to some extent, I think it's also if you're the leader in the organization, you know, so I guess if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, I'm I'm the person who's supposed to bring about this change, mm-hmm. I think it also depends on what your superpower is. Because at Airbus, like, you know, when I saw you, Susie, walk into a room of people who all kind of were tribally opposed to each other and kind of brought this fierce energy into it and sort of, you know, took command of the situation and really got at, like, what was scaring people and exciting people and then and then kind of created this mm. almost like energetic aura in the room. I was like, this is great, but I could never do that, right? <laughs> Everyone I, I has this superpower. That's not my superpower, right? Like I could figure out, you know, what is the technology solution to mm. the that where the where the people are drowning and then hopefully bring in other people to, you know, with their own superpowers. But to me, this is how I think about it. So I I tend to I tend to see many problems as technology problem because it's what I love and what excites me. And yeah, that's like, that's your lens. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how I see it. Right. But, but other people say, well, no, technology is the, you know, technology is just the sort of window dressing. What this is really about is process change and and culture change and stuff like Mm. this. And because that's their lens. Right. So, 
I, I'm afraid I don't have a, you know, I don't have the perfect formula. Um, I think it depends on the person. But I think it's a brilliant illustration of um, whoever's head of, it's not necessarily just his or her job, because we can't do this on our own. And that's, you know, what you've just been saying about different superpowers and what different people bring to the table means that, you know, you can't do it on your own. And I think if I come back to innovation methods like Agile that are meant to create this space can quite easily get shoehorned into the existing status quo of, okay, we do scrum, so everything's going to be all right. Right. So, you know, I mean, what's your advice on making your organization agile, which is essentially what we're talking about. It's what you've done in Konux. It's what we did in Airbus, but how did we do that? And we're also back to the middle management layer, aren't we? Because there are ways of doing things that unless you have, the culture behind Agile don't get changed, although you put different tools in. Yes. Yeah, I mean, for sure, some of these Agile ways of working are extremely rigid, process-oriented. I mean, if they're implemented in a certain way, that mm. they're very process-oriented, very rigid, not resilient, not dynamic as they were originally mm. to be. And so for sure, if you focus on the process versus some of the underlying kind of culture and philosophy behind Mm. it, you'll entirely miss it. And in fact, make some of the rigidity and, Mm. uh, you know, some of the problems worse, you know, you'll make the organization more rigid. So what is the trick to being a more agile organization or what is the way of making, what is the question exactly? What is the way of making the organization more agile? Mm. Yeah. How do you create, a more agile organization and i'm taking organization as the sort of evolving being so with organizational design the ways of working and and the way you create ecosystems both inside and outside the organization because agile came to mind when you were talking about the white house saying oh this is the first time they've ever been in the room together right. and what came to my mind was oh multifunctional teams and my my thought from that was oh multifunctional teams are part of agile and then often it just gets stuck as a multifunctional team yeah, and they just function within within the existing um, status quo yeah that's fair that's very fair and i think you're right to talk about culture maybe there's even something more fundamental i mean maybe that's there's something that is where culture is the output of it hmm. it relates to kind of the mindset of hmm. the people in the team or in the organization and i found that when people started zooming out and like i said technology can be great for that because it gets yeah. rid of bad mind spaces yeah. what if you know let's start thinking in a utopian way right but when people start zooming out and start a imagining themselves to be very empowered so it's like you know imagine if you can do anything b think about kind of on the highest level what is their kind of mission and purpose which like you know certainly in well, in the context of the White House, people go in for the best reasons. You know, their job is to save lives, improve mm. people's lives, you know, um, solve real problems for people who are suffering. And then, you know, see, hold themselves accountable to some kind of outcome. These are very good starting points. But I think in people's jobs, you don't always have all three at the same time. Certainly you're not no. in mindset. And I will say even for some of these teams that I've been a part of that were brought in, Mm. um, I would always just be surprised how people would be kind of walking around, clocking in, clocking out as if, you know, we weren't there to help save the world, right? And (laughs) and just be like, you know, and I I would get very frustrated, you know, and say, you know, guys, like, 
There, there are burning buildings everywhere. Mm. We're firefighters. We've got lots of water. You know, and it's like if you have that mentality, you just want to say, "Go, go, go!" And go, go. Yeah. And then, you know, and then a lot of the BS of the processes that don't matter, the tribal conflicts that don't matter, the systems and 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 things that are getting in the way, you kind of can you kind of can get have a ruthless clarity that pushes that all to the side. So for me, that's like very much a mindset thing, though. Mm. Um, and 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 it's about you know getting people to zoom out, take accountability, have an optimistic vision that that also holds themselves to a high standard. Mm. This to me is also just the magic of building teams. Anyway, I think yes. I, it seems to be that <clears throat> agility is a very good uh, mm. ingredient of a successful team. But I think that this is just a nice way to build a team, any team. Yeah, but I'm also hearing that you're being explicit, Adam, about what's in what's what's in the team, what it's going to do the accountability that sits there and also the behavior that the the group are expecting to get there, Um, which for me is often what's missing. And the more we get into digital, the more we need what keeps us human as well in terms of skill sets and we get these T profiles. So how do you manage? It brings me straight onto upskilling and talent. How do you manage and to retain, well, attract and retain talent in such competitive market? Yes. Well, and and then let me say one more comment on on what you said. This this to me is like also the magic of why you know from inside large organizations that people kind of glamorize startups, yeah. um, and then, and you know and I remember like being brought into these larger organizations and in kind of you know these panels and saying like oh teach us teach us from your startup life you know teach how us how to think as a startup how, how do we <laughs> do this out? you know and it's kind of like well you have no idea how poorly performing we are organizationally. <laughs> relative to a successful Fortune mm. company, except for the fact that we have one thing that tends not to exist in a Fortune 100 company, which is that we, for better or worse, know exactly what our mission is and are feeling 100% accountable for completing it, which you can lose sight of as of the supervisor grows. Yeah. So, so with that, just one thing could be very powerful. You know, it's, it, it's so powerful that people inside much higher performing organizations think that these startups are actually even better than their company when in fact they're run by you know 20 somethings who have no idea what they're doing <laughs> but um, they've got but, personal agency and accountability haven't they yeah, that's what you're saying they have this they have this kind of accountability and in terms of talent it depends what kind of talent i think um you're trying to attract and what kind of setup that you have and it's been very interesting thinking about talent because the kind of talent that you need to make kind of these these big um, transformation missions, mm. I think are very is very different. But therefore, I think you need to be selective in a different way than this big movement, especially post COVID, yeah. um, to be like very much focused on managing work life balance, on uh, moving to more and more and more remote work, protecting psychological safety because of all the issues that happened. Mm both during COVID and because it's more important to people, I think, than ever before. And to some extent, this has been this has been an interesting movement. And I think a lot of these mission-driven organizations and transform like transformational organizations have to some extent gone in a slightly different direction to say, like, if you really care about a mission and if you are, are getting a lot of personal fulfillment from it and joy from it, it, it can kind of sustain and protect you in a very beautiful way. And so therefore, what I will say is like there's a lot of a lot of the problems that a lot of large organizations or or sort of like let's say less mission driven organizations 
have had in just like remotivating employees, mm. getting them back into the office and getting them kind of refocused and reprioritizing what they're doing is like less of a problem if you have the kind of animating mission that everyone's all, all on board with and feeling very connected to already mm. in place. This for me has been a bit lucky because having always been a part of these organizations, you know, when you're surrounded by kind of high performing, motivated people who really care about what they do, it's very addicting. And yeah. then I, the problem, the problem is like, I think the place you want to be at is where you have a team of people where you're like, I'm learning more from these people than I mm. can imagine learning from anyone else. And so therefore retaining talent almost takes care of itself. Cause you're like, we all yeah. care, we're all working together. We all care about what we're doing. And I'm learning more than I ever would before. Mm. And I'm the kind of person who cares about that. So if you have this fit, then it could be very nice. I mean, mm. it's, it, it's sort of then a self-stirring pot. It is, isn't it? But it often sits in larger organizations. It sits in satellite structures yeah. for very good reasons. So it sits, you know, innovation structures, yeah, satellite yeah. structures or digital factories or whatever. And I've seen that, you know, you've got Konux Labs, yes. which is also dedicated structure for innovation. Is that the same type of idea? And if so, is it around showing how processes and business can work differently and then contaminating and positively contaminating the rest of the organization or? Yes, that was okay. the idea. And it is a silly idea, of course, because we were already a startup <laughs> doing innovating ourselves. It is, it is silly. However, this was what was necessary. So basically just. There to, are no silly ideas, Adam. Well, you know. It's I just a different idea. It, it was, it was <laughs> kind of, let's say, I don't know. It was, it was kind of like a clumsy idea in the sense that. <laughs> In the sense that we were, you know, we weren't no a hundred thousand person organization. So mm. let's, you know, and and we should already be disruptive. But the problem that we were solving was we had this huge first product that built kind of our company and was, you know, was our cash cow and 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 was and is and 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 is was driving our our business forward. Um, but so much of the way we built products was all based on this one example. Mm. So basically what it was is an effort to say, let's step outside of this and let's kind of have a um, small team that can kind of build out new ways of working without reference to the original, mm. you know, set of technologies and everything like this with the goal that it would be disintegrated and ultimately merged into our, into the rest of how we did product and engineering, which by the way, has happened as of this year. So, so this was oh, like, great. okay. Yeah, this this was kind of a, a complete end to end story, basically, and I don't. I guess we just didn't update the website yet, but we will. <laughs> update it. But, but, but this and this has happened as of let's say a month ago, and 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 that's exactly how it worked, right? Like we we built out all these ways of working. We built out a lot of especially like these early prototyping techniques mm. that we just didn't we never had because we had this very mature product, and we made the decision at the time to say we don't. We don't want to kind of onboard all of the bloat of like a very, very large system that's already built. So mm. we're going to put it out separately. But then when we integrate it, we're going to kind of like carve away at the big system, the big mature system mm. to kind of merge the two and blend the two. And I think in large organizations, they do it the same way. And I think the harder thing for large organizations is actually doing the integration. Yes. Exactly. Nobody wants to ultimately join the mothership. Um, no, and that's my observation: is that a lot of great stuff happens there, but it's very hard to put yeah. it back into exactly. the mothership, particularly from 
not just processes and, and digital platforms and different business models, it's also getting it accepted, isn't it, into that that's how we do things around here. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, I'm curious what you would say, because I've seen very few examples of it going very cleanly. I mean, mm. Usually, if it works, it's usually in a very messy way. And, and mm. I, I've seen it be messy in like a hundred different ways. So I'm curious. How like, yeah, well, it's the it's the antibodies, isn't it, that stay in the system of two completely different cultures. Yeah. You know, one business as usual and one more disruptive, more innovative. But essentially, I think we come back to our very first conversation of if you start that work as you're starting the satellite structure, right. then people get used to the fact that they're bringing them something new and it's not to impose it on them, it's to actually improve their existing pain points. Well, that's very fair. And I will say that's the one thing that I've seen done so badly and so wrong so many times in these like satellite teams yeah. where they basically build out these quote unquote proofs of concept where they say like our job is going to be to play with the most exciting, cool technology without even reference to what the future mm. should be. But but we're going to have these super smart people who just want to work on quantum computing or <laughs> or AI or yeah. whatever and, and we're going to do very small experiments that don't really go anywhere alienates the large organization because they're like well we're not mm. <laughs> cool mm. enough to use quantum computers and, you know, and and then and then of course it it's it's pointless from the um innovation team because they're not actually scaling the impact of what they do and then it creates what I've always known as kind of this valley of death problem where you have yeah. the concept just immediately mm. hitting this like death point and then nothing on the other side right and mm. and and for sure this is like this is the wrong way to do it and and it produces the problem that you described which is just like the rest of the organization just becomes hostile mm. to the um mm. you know to the work and therefore there's no beautiful merging yeah. of two ways of working yeah because you've got to transform and perform at the same time haven't you and that will be scaled given the size of the organization that you're either working in or with but yeah. what what what's your best practice then for upskilling for digital because i see quite a lot of people saying oh we've got an academy for digital but it's just hard skills and as we've just talked about for the last 10 15 minutes i i think there's a business case for best practice of bringing harder and softer skills as they're known today together for this culture that digital will enable but of course you need the different sort of interpersonal skills to enable it to scale it across an organization yes that's true you know i'd say even before you talk about soft skills even in terms of hard skills i would say i think sometimes there's a mistake of assuming that these kind of fancy elite um, innovation teams have all the skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's an assumption. Of, You're right. <laughs> that actually like makes all the money and changes the world. And, you know, you know like, uh, these people are the unskilled people that you can be <laughs> you know, but these other people that aren't generating in value and are just playing around and tinkering with their toys, these are the highly skilled people, you know. So I, I always, and I believe me, I always thought of myself as one of the highly, highly skilled, innovative people until I joined a big organization. <laughs> actually, I haven't learned anything in my life. So I think, I mean, to me, Airbus is a perfect example. Mm. Like, uh, you know, the, the engineers at Airbus are the best in the world. Yep. Uh, you know, the, the people who do production at Airbus are the best in the world. Like, there is so much to learn 
from the way they 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 work and, Absolutely. and <laughs> things in terms of incredible scale and process management and, and complexity management, all of which are required if you're ever going to have an impact on the world. So yeah. so therefore I think there's there's almost this like mutual learning that that happens synergistically when mm. you are forced to kind of say, okay, as you said, you know, building mm. building to scale from the beginning. So this this is always something that, you know, it's important to keep in mind because you know, often, I guess I've always seen it less as kind of like upscaling more as a kind of fusing of different ways of working, if that makes sense. Mm. And then in terms of soft skills, I, I think probably you're right. That really is where you need a lot of upskilling because in the digital era, there's so many more that just, just the way we work is so different because mm. information can be so easily combined and spread and kind of like repurposed mm. it creates an environment so much more naturally suited to collaboration mm. and also to like rapid learning and learn like learning and adjusting right mm. and i think this is what you were alluding to before yeah. that these are really the like this agility and and kind of sort of more collaborative orientation to work is the hardest thing mm. Bring mm. and maybe is the secret thing that like the innovation team has um mm. that that the regular or the mainstream organization mm. lacks. I but think i think that's a great example adam of the fact that learning unlearning relearning whatever we call that sort yeah. of learning agility is not enough on its own like you say if you don't understand the business the processes and i come right back to the beginning of this conversation of going to ask the people who actually do what they do right. you know what their pain points are and how they could do it better so bringing those two worlds together for me is one of the biggest challenges, but it's exactly what you're doing at, at Konux. So I, that's why I was really interested in the labs, and and you've managed to put it back in. So that's brilliant. But that that's well. Also, we weren't so different. For I mean, we were you know still yes. a 150 person organization. So it's everyone knows each other, and it's a lot easier when you're in a hundred thousand people. It's it's a lot harder, right? And, yeah. So of, you know. of course, but it's a model that those larger organizations can take and think. Okay, what works for us? Yes. What works for us in the learnings of that model, even though it's on a different scale in, in a different, because often startups, when they're scaling their culture, it yeah. is about what works what works for us at our scale. But I see the same things in larger organizations. They just scale very differently. No, it's totally true. And, and I will say we did have culture change when all these things happened. Mm. One of the culture changes that we had to embrace was this idea of, you know, as you can imagine, we're working in safety critical infrastructure, yeah. this sort of like first time right philosophy of sort of saying like like there will be no mistakes yeah. this is extremely mm. you know this is the most expensive capacity cost of an engineering team to say like we refuse to accept any failure any risk at any point mm. you know of the let's say in the, in the overall system mm. most most in the broadest sense and this is in some ways very healthy but even like you know safety critical industries they they quickly i mean if they're if they're good they they quickly at least partially unlearn this instinct because yes. you need to accept risk and failure in order to produce high quality safe products mm. so and you know you see, you saw that at airbus all the time mm. i remember when i first started at airbus we were doing a tour and we saw oil leaking from um, the exterior of the aircraft and i was really panicked by this and i was like why is it leaking oil <laughs> And he says, no, 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 it's supposed to leak a little bit. If it stops leaking, that's the problem. That's the problem. Oil. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So there's some, you know, like there is like, I mean, nothing can be designed perfectly. Things no. are designed within some threshold of, of quality. 
this is great. I mean, this is this is how you build resilience into into systems. And as mm. long as as long as it's, it, but you have to be beautifully expert at managing that risk. Mm. And this is the, so. Therefore, somehow having this kind of fierce desire to get to the perfect system at the same time you have this like disruptive desire to rethink to re-engineer to accept risk to wonder and be creative mm. these are very healthy competitive impulses i think yeah as long as the like you say the resilience is creative i.e it's not just banging at it until you know and rebounding rebounding until it's perfect but actually you know thinking about it differently and doing something that that creates probably a little bit of a different end product and a little bit of a different process but and it probably won't be the process next time, but then that's that's what it's about, isn't it? But I and, I and I think that that's why it was always very useful, especially for you know doing this kind of transformation in large organizations to take people from the organization. And I think, uh, mm. for example, our, our teams at Airbus, the best mm. people were not the people like me who were hired from outside of aerospace, but rather the people who were like the high performing mm. business of their team within the company. Mm who know, knew everything, knows everyone, and really got like why things worked the way that they did, but then saw creatively a different way of doing things and and were, and were sort of temperamentally different from this. And this is this to me is the secret weapon of large organizations, that they're yeah. just producing these people um, who have somehow both superpowers at the same time. Yeah. And it's so crazy to me that they're not more effectively weaponized throughout organizations because if you're, you're producing these geniuses who mm. understand the system as it is and are temperamentally thinking constantly, how could this be better? And they're just stuck often in the organization itself without any avenue to improve things. Yeah. Shame. And this is where I think a lot of these centers of excellence and, and innovation teams spring up out of, because you just can, you can't help but realize we just need to give a home for these people mm. and set them to work. Mm. Yeah. And, and scale what they've got because they do understand yeah. both systems. You're yeah, right. Yeah. So we've talked about the lessons learned, what you've seen, what you're currently doing at Conux. What's your future vision for the rail industry and, you know, what needs to happen for it to be flexible enough to do, to move into the digital era? Let's put it that way. Number one, we need to have a vast ecosystem of data collection technologies. And, and this has to exist in many different many different areas so you know we want we want to fully outfit the infrastructure of rail with a variety of different sensing technologies and in fact like make it make it so that anyone can just kind of plug something in into mm. the platform and then it could it could kind of upload data to the to the cloud uh, but this is very challenging because you need to deal with a lot of problems and um, you need to supply energy or at least have very good batteries and then you also need to be able to integrate many different kinds of sensors together. And this will have to be done by multiple companies. I mean, Kona's mm -hmm. part of the answer, but it also needs to kind of play nicely and integrate with other very innovative academics and, and mm. small, medium enterprises. And then we need to kind of, therefore, like with this massive kind of data network, we need to be very, we need to kind of re-envision how we do things in many different ways. So it's like, Today, Conex has provided some answers to this, right? So instead of waiting for assets to break and then just fixing them in a very expensive way, we are providing the answer to predicting when things are failing, mm. why failing, and then therefore asking the people who operate and maintain these assets to think differently about it, to plan differently. 
But then there's many different pieces of this problem, right? Like it's also about how you um, organize the network, you know, and, and and maintain a massive network and do planning around it. Um, but then even how you operate it, right? So, you know, today we have fixed timetables that are not resilient at all to any kind of disruption. So for example, if you have, you know, somehow a single disruption, you know, a, a, a train being blocked or delayed, which could then miss its connection and miss the train it's supposed to join mm. with, blah, blah, blah. And it could create havoc through the network. So like mm. in hour one, you could see one delay causing, you know, mm. hours and hours and hours of delays that spread throughout the network because we don't have this resilience built into the system. But this will require a different way of thinking about network operation and which, if we have the data to do it and and some of the basic systems for doing it, is totally possible. Mm. So one way to think about it is that rail is a huge system which can be optimized, which is currently to some extent optimized locally, but which could be optimized globally across because because all of these things are interconnected, like mm. the better we maintain the network, the more uptime it has, which means the less disruption there is. So tr- trains are moving smoothly through it. If those are maintained and, and operated well, then we could like avoid these catastrophic delays. So by thinking of the system very, uh, very globally and connecting data in interesting ways, as I said, we can we can vastly improve the capacity and availability of the network. Mm. What this will mean is that, you know, basically we can operate far more trains at higher capacity and and therefore, you know, make it the answer to, mm. you know, our our big mobility challenge, our big sustainability challenge in mobility, which is that, you know, you see this in, in Europe that every every European country is is trying to get people off of airplanes and onto trains. Onto trains. <laughs> and, and there's no way to do it unless we solve this problem. So mm. it, so this is somehow a burning platform. Good news is that we we have pretty good solutions for it. So it's just it's just a matter of getting these into people's hands and and doing the change management necessary um, to mm. take people. But the te- the technology exists, right? Then, um, as you say, it's all the people mm-hmm. processes yeah. and, and and other stuff, you know, that 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 are are still ahead of us. Yeah, it's a different management system, isn't it, for business ecosystems? Yeah. Adam, okay, time is running. Would you have a final thought or nugget of learning to share with our listeners before we wrap up this session around scaling digital operations successfully? I think that my nugget is that. The scaling journey is so interesting because I've seen, you know, now I've had now these three different experiences in in a very big scale setting where, mm. you know, one at the White House, we were kind of on the on sort of this innovation team on in, in Airbus. It was kind of from the inside of the mothership, so to speak. And then um as a as a startup kind of outside the industry trying to penetrate it. But somehow it all feels the same. And I think that it can be broken down into various stages where you start that it's always the fun bit where, you know, you're doing the fun innovation stuff and you're just trying to show people Mm. what the technology is. And then I think the kind of like stage two is, is the really hard bit where it's, you're actually trying to build um, technologies that do fit inside the organization so that they they can scale mm. before it's fully accepted and before it's fully understood how powerful it is. And then finally, the third bit, which is less hard, but maybe more painful, is the integration bit where you're trying to kind of then sort of like merge the ways of working. 
I would say the vast majority of time, what I've seen of all the projects I've worked on is it fails in the second stage mm. that we can't figure out how to prove the value fast enough. And as you said, the antibodies win mm. and mm. kind of reject it before it could get off the ground. And, you know, to me, the nugget of wisdom is just get that part right. <laughs> really exciting, really good. Do the change management very thoughtfully and carefully and don't neglect the importance in the first stage of like really building something that works within the context of the organization that you're mm. trying to disrupt. That would be my nugget. All right, super. Thank you. I'm going to leave our listeners with that and how they can innovate on getting the second stage right and anticipating those problems. Adam, thanks so much for coming and sharing your thoughts, your insights, your experience. Where can people find out more about Conux and you and what you do? Find us on LinkedIn, find us online, Google us. Yeah, we'll have some we'll have some fun news to share in the coming weeks. So you could also find us in your local tech or rail blog um, pretty soon. Okay, excellent. Okay, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave that shrouded in mystery for the moment. <laughs> okay, thanks, Adam. Thanks for a great conversation. All right, cheers. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Transformation.